Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, let's be frank for a minute. For a long time, bonds seemed to be uh, pretty boring. If your investment portfolio was a meal, bonds were sort of like the vegetable. Yeah, you knew you needed them there on the plate, but they weren't very exciting. Rather, stocks were the meat and potatoes and dessert. Crypto, well, maybe that was the shot and beer you had afterwards. But that's all obviously changed. After last year's carnage, bonds of all stripes are sporting really attractive yields that look especially enticing these days if and when that market focus shifts from worries about inflation to worries about economic growth. And exchange-traded funds especially are reaping the windfalls with hundreds of billions of dollars flowing into bond products in the last year. You heard it. Bonds are exciting again, and we're going to get into it with the head of fixed income at the world's largest asset manager. But Vildana, first, speaking of excited, I I was very excited yesterday when I came into the office and I noticed you had left a book for me on my desk, which I assume means I'm finally invited to one of your book clubs. And I'm very excited. about. Oh, my gosh. I didn't mean it to look that way. But I suppose it looks that way, like I am giving you, I'm offering an invite. Sweet, I'm not invited to one of your many Uh, book clubs? Okay, I suppose you and I have a book club going then, because we have a special guest next week, and you and I have been tasked with reading his book before the podcast. Uh, That's why I left it on your desk. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's not not as exciting as one of your real... Book My clubs. real book clubs, which you're not invited to. I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm starting to wonder about what exactly these books are you're reading in these book clubs they're that fun. I'm not invited They're fun to. books. That's, yeah. No invite for well, you. Tell us about the What Goes Up book club. Who, who do we have next we week? We have Alan Blinder next week. And he, he has a very thorough history of monetary and fiscal policy. So we'll be talking to him next week. That is riveting book club material right there. But this week's guest is equally exciting. Why don't you uh, introduce him? Yeah, I want to bring in Steve Lapley. He's the U.S. head of fixed income ETFs at BlackRock. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You're welcome to join any of my many, many book clubs that I belong to. I, w- I was going to say, uh, it, the, the book for next week does sound riveting. So, so I'll have to check that out. You're wel- come, come on into our, our book club then. <laughs> You're very welcome to, to be part of for- it. <laughs> Pour the Chardonnay. <laughs> I'll bring the cheese. Um, <laughs> Steve, maybe we can just uh, we can just start with. So you're U.S. head of fixed income ETFs at BlackRock. So tell us about your your role. Yeah, so I've been with the firm since 2009, and you know it's been uh, it's been quite a journey. When I joined uh, BlackRock, bond ETFs did exist. Um, we launched the uh, first set of them in 2002, and we recently celebrated the the 20 year anniversary of those. But it was still, you know, a relatively 
nascent business in terms of where it is today. And so, you know, we decided to really make an effort at growing that business. And in particular, I'm really trying to make the market aware of just how much these products could, number one, help investors. Um, That's the important part. But also, we had a very strong conviction that these products were going to change the bond market itself. And so I was one of the uh, folks brought in to really, you know, start growing this team. And over time, we built out the bond ETF um, infrastructure quite a lot. And so my role currently is to oversee that business more broadly in terms of, you know, the products that we're designing, engaging with with clients on their experiences, how we can improve the products, working with broker dealers, index providers, all, all of the folks who are very important to the ecosystem to make sure everything functions well, just to overall make sure investors are getting the outcomes that um, that they're expecting. You know, Steve, I was kind of joking at the beginning there talking about how bonds were boring. Of course, they are. They've always been very exciting. But clearly in, a, in a, that decade of, of zero interest rate policy or, or near zero interest rate policy, there's just been this massive sea change now with, with higher yields. Every, I think, investor strategist we spoke to recently heading into 2023 was was much more bullish on, on bonds. That's kind of reversing a little bit now. You know, I'm, I'm looking at you know some of the iShares, uh, you know, uh, big fixed income ETFs, TLT, LQD, uh, the aggregate uh, AGG, really off to a strong year, like the stock market, and now kind of back to maybe flat, flattish on the year, up a little. Um, how do you see the rest of the year shaping out? You know, clearly inflation and the Fed are the most important uh, elements of of how bonds will do this year. There seems to be a rethink uh, going on uh, about how high the Fed will actually hike and when and if inflation will actually back normalize back to that two percent area. So how are you thinking that you know how the rest of the year will play out in fixed income? Yeah, it's it's been a bumpy ride. Last year, as as you know, was the worst bond market we've seen in probably forty years. It was it was incredibly challenging. I think, to your point, investors have been lulled into, you know, a bit of well, rates are low for long and maybe low forever. That changed very very dramatically last year. I think investors were looking forward to this idea that oh, twenty twenty three, we're at these higher yields. It's great. I'm going to allocate. I'm going to fix my forty, so to speak. Um, and then all of a sudden we got this slew of very positive data. And you know, that made everybody, as you said, rethink. It does feel like people rethink this and maybe overthink it every week, if not more more frequently <laughs> than that. I'm a little more sanguine on this. I think that, you know, there there is a limit to how high uh, rates can go. So I think that the Fed's going to be watching the data closely. You know, we've maintained a view that consistently that inflation was probably not going to, go down in a straight line. Um, We've been saying that for quite a while. And I think that's just what we're seeing now. There's going to be some bumps along the way. We do think that, you know, it's possible that they may hike a little bit more than than what was originally expected. Um, And then they may hold rates at that elevated level. Um, If you just look at the futures market, I think, you know, the peak rate is somewhere around and it's probably, you know, it's bumping around, you know, day over day, but it's somewhere you know, closer to a five and a half uh, percent terminal rate than it was before, but not quite there. So, so I think there's going to be, you're going to see the market, you know, kind of trying to find a level here. And I do believe that there's, there's a limit to this because um, whether people believe it or not, ultimately these hikes will impact the economy. They will take hold. Um, there's debate about when that can happen, but it, but it will happen. It's happened every single time in the past. So they're cognizant of that and they don't want to, you know, go too fast and too far. 
Yeah, Steve, do you guys have an internal view in terms of what else to expect? It sounds like maybe two more 25 basis point hikes that we can expect from the Fed. We have had this discussion over the last couple of weeks of some Fed members arguing even for during the last meeting that they should go with 50 basis points, that potentially the next, I think it's the March meeting, could be 50 basis points. So do you have an internal view on, on what we can expect? I think we're we're still thinking that they probably end up somewhere, you know, at five and a quarter, maybe one more. But uh, but it's really like, if you look at the market, that's pretty consistent. Unless we get, you know, a really outsized inflation surprise. Um, like I said, we, we've been pretty consistent that it's not going to be linear. It's there, there are going to be some bumps along the way. So I think this is, you would like to see it go down more consistently, but, but this, this isn't really surprising us all that much. Um, so like I said, I think, I think the market's basically pricing in, you know, around five and a quarter, between five and a quarter, five and a half as a terminal point. Uh, you know, Steve, uh, as I mentioned at the opening, the, the uh, spent some eye popping flows into into the fixed income uh, ETF space at, at Black BlackRock uh, iShares uh, and really throughout the industry. Where are you seeing most of the flows go into? What it, what does it sort of mean to you uh, when you look at where the flows are going? Is it primarily the the safety haven? You know, that TLT, the Treasuries ETF, that sort of thing, or you know, is there interest across the whole portfolio? Well, it's it's interesting. If you would have told me last January that the largest category of inflows would have been treasuries, I, I would have probably disagreed, given <laughs> the uh, you know how hawkish everyone was and the view that you know rates were were going to accelerate um, quite a lot. But as it turns out, for us anyway, it was. You know, we took in over a hundred billion um, in the U.S., one hundred twenty-five billion globally. Of that hundred billion, sixty-five billion was in treasuries, which was. You know, again, wow. I think I think most people would have been quite surprised. That was followed uh, by investment grade, multi-sector, municipals. Um, so yes, to your point, it was all um, high quality. I do think that was a reflection of uh, investors saying these yields are attractive. I can't call the top. I'm not going to try to call the top. That's that's pretty tough to get right. So I'm going to start allocating. But you know, I'm a little bit worried about where we're going here in terms of. Do we tip into a recession? You know, what do we um, what do we ultimately end up doing as far as a landing goes? So I'm going to buy high quality. The part that helped that out the most, if you think about it, the front end of the yield curve. You know, you have two year notes that are now above four and a half percent, and so it they didn't have to go down in credit to to get yield. Um, they they were seeing yields they haven't seen in many many years. Um, that that trend persisted this year. We're seeing high quality uh, flows this year as well. To, to the flows into the HYG, the the high yield ETF, I, I'm guessing they track closer with risk sentiment in the stock market. Are, are you not seeing them there that they're more of a risk on type of product? Yeah, I agree with that. And particularly HYG um, has become very entrenched in the you know high yield um, ecosystem. And so it does tend to react very quickly to sentiment. So you know, when you have risk on, you'll, you know, you see equities rally, you'll probably see flows in HYG. When you have risk off, as you said, you'll probably see the opposite. And it, it does happen to react quickly and in large size. I want to ask you more about your predictions for what you see for the bond ETF space down the line. But but first, you mentioned the two-year note. Um, it's above four and a half percent. I'm wondering what you think the bond market is telling us right now, given the rise in yields that we've seen in recent days. Yeah, I think it was this adjustment. The market had started to get to a place where, um, okay, the end is in sight, all is going according to plan, um, and you know we can even start thinking about a Fed pivot. You know, it depends on what speaker, what day, 
But I think, you know, the last uh, speech by Powell sort of calmed the market down and I think got them to a place where it's like, okay, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. This recent slew of data really upended that a bit where you saw strong employment numbers, you know, really, really outsized the, uh, you know, the manufacturing indicators, PMI, et cetera, were strong. Inflation did not come down, you know, as much as, as, uh, as people had expected or hoped. And so what you're seeing the market is just sort of pricing in, you know, combination of, you know, maybe an additional hike or, you know, higher for longer, if you will. And so I think it was just that adjustment. We've seen this. So remember, I think last year, the peak was somewhere closer to four and a half. And so we've been on this journey before. We may test at some point above 4% again. But but like I said, I, I don't think that we're going to see yields jump sharply higher. You, know, you may see them grind a little bit higher, but I think we're going to be more or less in a range. It might be a volatile one as people continue to price in and price out what they uh, what the Fed may do. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Yeah, you know, Steve, you mentioned earlier that notion of uh, you know bonds being that forty percent of the portfolio in a traditional sixty forty portfolio. Last year was just one of those bad years where that stock and bond correlation reversed. You know, it, it, typically when you see stocks go up, you would expect bonds to fall, yields to go up uh, as a result. Last year, obviously, we saw stocks and bonds uh, fall together and sort of eliminate that, you know, uh, hedging aspect of, of a bond in a in a sixty forty p- portfolio. What do you think we need to happen to see happen to get that correlation back to what everyone expects it to be? I mean, is it a is it a narrative shift? Is it a sentiment shift? Or is it really about the data and inflation normalizing? I mean, do we really have to wait for 2% inflation to see that old sort of trusted correlation reemerge? So it's a combination of some of the things you mentioned. So as long as the Fed is is being very hawkish, I think that that sort of perpetuates what you just said. So yields go up, you have risk off, um, you have equity sell-offs, high yield sell-offs, or what have you. I think when the market comes to believe that, okay, we're, we're reaching sort of a, a, a you know, a leveling off place here. And I do think, you know, we may be starting to see that with the old, you know, bumping up closer to 4%. And like I said, I'm, I'm of the view that we will uh, bounce around in this range anyway. But I think um, investors um, will start seeing that traditional behavior. So as an example, when you don't have a hawkish speech in the market, you do tend to see the traditional correlation where if equities are, are selling off, you'll, you'll see yields trend lower. I think it was really about getting to that level. I think we're almost there. And I think um, at these levels, there's a lot of diversification value um, in yields right now. So, you know, you need to have a calming down of all the hawkish, you know, speeches and all that stuff. But I but I think we're we're getting there. The thing that Mike was referencing, I think, because I wrote it down, I like what you said. You said a lot of people are thinking, I'm going to fix the 40 part of the 60-40. And I think you guys are saying that advisor 60-40 portfolios are underallocated to fixed income by 9%. So 
Uh, and that now is a once in a many year opportunity to rebalance portfolios. So maybe you can tell us more about that. Yeah, it's been interesting. So if you think about the last decade, we've had quantitative easing. We've had yields. Um, you know, if you look at where the 10-year bottomed out, it was 50 basis points, um, which is remarkable. The two-year bottomed out somewhere in the teens, you know, 12 or 15 basis points. So a lot of investors decided to, you know, stay out of the market or, you know, they had to take on a lot of additional risk to get that yield. So whether that was overweighting high yield in that traditional part of the portfolio where maybe they would have preferred higher quality assets, but they had to have the income or things like uh, alternatives and private credit, private equity, you know, asset classes of those nature. Now, investors are looking at this market, the public fixed income markets, and realizing that they can, quote unquote, fix their 40 by de-risking it to varying degrees. So you don't have to be, you know, the majority in high yield to get a certain yield target. You can allocate to the front end of the treasury curve and get, you know, yields that you were, you were seeing at some point in the high yield market. So um, it really is an op- uh, opportunity to get back to what that 40 was supposed to do, which is diversify your risk assets. And then you think about a simple, okay, I have the S&P 500. What do I want to hold against it? Um, a very simple you know, world would be, oh, I'll hold long dated treasuries against it. Mike, for the reason you said, which was, I know that if the equity market sells off, probably long treasuries will rally. But investors are being a lot more intentional than that. They are looking at building out that 40 um, in a much more um, deliberate way. So yes, allocating building blocks to treasuries, investment grade, having some bit of high yield. And I think what we're advocating is to get away from this whole active passive paradigm, which we think is really just you know kind of an archaic you know construct. We think really it's both. And so we're encouraging investors to use bond ETFs for that core diversification purpose. And why is that? Well, because you know what they're going to do. You could see what the holdings are. They're transparent. You know what the strategy is because they're following an index. Use that predictability as the diversifying part of your portfolio. Okay, whether that's treasuries, investment grade, some combination of both, and then you can use an active manager to get that extra kick um, in your forty as well. So it's not active versus passive; it's both. Um, and, and obviously, you know, each investor will have to decide what that mix looks like. But we do believe that both can play a role in that forty and get you to a much more uh, robust place than you were before. I've never heard somebody argue that before, that it should be both. <laughs> it should be both. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a great time to do it because, you know, like, like you said, it's the first time in, you know, 10 years, a dozen, a dozen years that you've been able to, to get these yields and de-risk at the same time, which is pretty remarkable. You know, Steve, it's, it's interesting when I think, and correct me if I'm wrong in how I'm thinking about this, but when, when I think of sort of the audience or, or the user base for say equity ETFs, I think of maybe a lot of self-directed retail investors. Uh, you know, average Joe's sort of uh, futzing around with their retirement or, or just their you know personal trading account. And you know, your your big uh, equity ETFs are pretty easy to understand for that audience. You know, you, you buy the Russell two thousand. You know. Uh, buy all the small cap stocks, buy Chinese large caps, buy, you know, whatever it is, you know, and, and again, I could be wrong about this, but I, I don't see that cohort of investors really knowing what they're doing uh, as well with fixed income ETFs. And my impression is that the, the user base is different, that there it's more of a professional user based, even active bond fund managers, uh, a lot of times will park 
uh, you know, some some inflows into ETFs until they can pick out the bonds they want. Talk to us about that sort of difference. Is it, am I right in that that you know it's kind of a different user base between the different asset classes and ETFs? Well, actually, you know, Mike, I think it's um, it's a pretty diversified investor base. It's pretty broad, and so we we actually do see direct flows into fixed income ETFs. Now, they they do tend to be the ones that people know about, like AGG. Those folks will will know that okay, that's the bond market. I'm just going to buy that. I'm not an expert. I don't want to you know try to try to get too too smart about it or you know get too granular. I'll just buy the bond market. So you you'll tend to see that with the direct investors. You're right that a lot of the you know if you will power users tend to be these institutional investors, active managers, insurance companies, pensions, etc. But then there is a very large part of the you know, wealth client base, the advisor base um, that uses bond ETFs through things like models, right? So models are these recipes for here's how you build a portfolio. More and more firms are going that direction where instead of saying, hey, you know, buy this set of equity ETFs and then, you know, oh, for your bonds, just go out and, you know, build some ladder using municipal bonds that you like. They're advocating more for here's what your portfolio should look like. On the equity side, Here's the recipe for that. It's these ETFs on the fixed income side. You can use a combination of these ETFs. Um, and the model portfolios are a, a really fast-growing business, and more and more investors, and for that matter, advisors like it as well, because it allows them to free up their time to focus on things like you know tax planning, things like that. And so we're starting to see that a lot. So that um, I think is is the main you know growth area. But but we're seeing a ton of growth in the institutional side as well. To your point. And the last thing I would say about it is your traditional bond pickers, some people really love that, right? Um, it's, it's interesting and fun for them to do it, but even, even they've come to realize that if I am a bond ladder person, I can go ahead and do that for my client, but to get some diversification around that, I can buy something like you know our I-bonds, which is, it is a ladder, but you have within a given rung, you can have several hundred bonds. So even even the folks who really enjoy laddering, as an example, are starting to use ETFs alongside of that for for liquidity and diversification. So we talked a little bit about where you see the flows going. Where you said the majority is actually going towards Treasuries. Is that also what you would recommend? How, how people should be positioning right now? Well, I think the investors have to have a view. So for for investors who are pretty unsure about um, you know whether we're going to have a recession or um, when that might happen you know you can get great yield right in these higher quality exposures whether it's whether it's the front end of the treasury curve or investment grade or what have you you don't have to invest in uh, something like high yield however we do still have investors who are allocating a certain portion again think about the the model portfolios the the recipe if you will there's going to be an element of that and investors can make up their minds um, if they think that the you know, the chance of a recession, for example, is is um, overstated, then high yield might look attractive right now. You know, so if you look at where default rates are implied, it's somewhere in the 6% range, um, which isn't super high. I mean, a lot of times during more, uh, some of these bigger sell-offs, it's, it's approached double digits. But, you know, traditionally, the realized experience of defaults has been around, you know, sort of the high three, low 4% range. Um, so for investors who have that view that, well, I either think a recession isn't coming for a while, or I think it could be a lot more shallow than what people are worried about. Something like high yield could could also look attractive. But we're seeing people vote with in terms of flows. We're seeing still the majority this year going into the the higher quality segments. 
Uh, you know, you mentioned that uh, how high rates are at that front end of the treasury curve. I mean, I, every time I look at it, my eyes, I, I, you know, I take my glasses off and, and wipe them off and double check that I'm really seeing a three month T-bill yield at 4.8, 4.9%, whatever it's. But maybe you also need new glasses. <laughs> I might need new glasses, too. I don't know. But I can't help but wonder if, you know, we're back into the realm of uh, extraordinary measures, you know, to to get around the debt ceiling. Is that impacting the short end yet? Concerns about the debt ceiling and a potential default? And if not, will it? You know, how do, how do you see that whole issue playing out this year um, and, and what it means for fixed income? Well, we, we've, we've seen this movie before, right? Where, where it has happened, where we, we were actually downgraded and everything. But um, I don't, yeah. it, I, it's not, it, it's, there's a little bit of it that's in there. If you look at, you know, for example, credit default swaps, I, I haven't looked at the levels lately, but there was, there was sort of some of that risk uh, being, you know, slightly priced. I think as time goes on, that concern could come forward much more, you know, as, as we head, you know, towards the summer. Um, which which is kind of a critical time. So I would say it's not dramatically um, impacting the front end yet. Could it? Sure, could start creating a lot of concern um, as we as we start moving towards the summer. And then uh, I promised I would ask you about your long, long, long term views. And I think you guys are seeing are, are predicting that bond ETF assets will go from about one point eight trillion right now to five trillion by twenty thirty. And I wanted to ask you to to speak about that too. You know, this is something that we believe is is going to happen, and I think there are a number of drivers um, behind that. And it before last year, we also had that conviction. So I think we originally came out with a five trillion, um, even before some of the astonishing flows that we saw last year. And there are a number of trends driving that. You know, I've mentioned a few of them already. You know, one would be you know this growing institutional adoption. Um, so we talked about how you know before an active fixed income manager, as an example, would probably not touch one of these products because they viewed it as, well, that's a passive product. I'm an active manager. I'm a bond picker, et cetera. We have uh, moved past that um, in our view, where you have active managers using these products just as tools um, for, for active management, which is pretty remarkable. And so nine of the 10 largest um, active bond managers do use iShares fixed income ETFs, and they use them for active management tools. So that's that's a pretty interesting trend. And again, we're seeing insurance companies, pensions, all of these larger um, institutional clients um, really embrace the products. COVID accelerated that because of the liquidity issues you're experiencing in the underlying market. Last year um, was a further accelerant on that trend. Another long-term trend uh, that we see that's been talked about a lot um, is just this idea of the bond market finally modernizing. Some people laugh out loud when you use the term modernize and bond market in the same sentence um, because it's still not what we would call that modern compared to, you know, for example, the equity markets. Um, but we do think that the, the presence of fixed income ETFs and their infrastructure has really um, kicked the bond market into high gear in terms of modernizing. So a lot of the things that you see today um, in terms of activity, you know, call it portfolio trades, which are large bond basket trades that are priced and traded simultaneously, that's not possible without bond ETFs because they're the hedge for that. And the uh, plumbing around that, so the creation redemption mechanism, is what brings that to life. It allows uh, dealers to move large blocks of bonds um, to and from the exchange into the over-the-counter market. And so that's a very powerful 
um, innovation. I think the other uh, part of that is just pricing. Pricing something that um, everyone sort of took for granted for many years. It was something that um, index uh, pricing services did. Not a lot of thought was given to it, but because of this acceleration of these large block trades of bonds in conjunction with ETFs, it's become not only important, but necessary to be able to price large numbers of bonds and price them quickly. So now you have things like algorithmic pricing in credit, which is which is pretty astonishing. I think further developments will be, you know, all to all trading. You're seeing the market structure itself uh, change, and we think all of these things were really um, catalyzed by bond ETFs and just the desire by investors to use these products, but also not only directly, but to use them as tools for for some of the other things. We just talked about the the way advisors and and you know direct investors are using bond ETFs to build portfolios. We think that's only going to accelerate this idea of using transparent building blocks for your forty. That's going to continue. And then lastly, just we'll continue to see innovation in the number of of offerings, the number and type of bond ETF offerings over time. So those are kind of the four long term drivers. Like I said, we were already growing pretty rapidly, double digit growth every single year. Um, I think COVID accelerated that, and then the the yield spike uh, of last year further accelerated. So we're we're uh, pretty confident in that five trillion dollar prediction. We're almost we're approaching two trillion um, today. And honestly, if it wouldn't have been for this yield shock, which caused the values of fixed income assets to go down, we would, probably would have already crossed two trillion. Does getting to that five trillion uh, imply a shrinkage in AUM in traditional bond mutual funds? You know, that's up for debate. We think there will probably be a role for different types of wrappers, depending on what investors like. Um, There's certainly, you know, you've seen a migration by certain types of investors from from mutual funds to ETFs. You've seen it a lot in equities. Um, The same thing starting to happen in the bond market, which explains why you're seeing more and more traditional active managers offering ETFs because they know that a certain segment of the investor base wants it. So I think our view is we, we want to give clients the exposure that they want in the wrapper that works for them. Some people don't really view the ETF as, as something that they need because, well, I'm not going to trade every day. I, I'm not going to look at it every day. It's not that big of a concern. But we talked about these model investors. They very much want ETFs as part of that. So I think over time, there will be some sort of an equilibrium, but I think we're still in the midst of a migration. What I do think will happen um, is that you will see investors, more and more investors using bond ETFs instead of just going out and buying bonds, right? So as an example, if I'm an active manager, you know, instead of going out, I want to start a new strategy, instead of going out and buying hundreds or more of bonds to implement that strategy, I may start with a series of bond ETFs, and then I can put my higher conviction uh, bets into you know individual bonds or other positions, right? So recognizing that there's always a core of a portfolio, that can easily be accomplished through a low-cost bond ETF, and then you you can add value around that. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Steve, I'm going to put you on the spot with one final question here before we get to the crazy things. I'm looking at the 10-year Treasury yield now, 393 about. If we're to fast forward to the end of 2023 and I throw out a number, say 3.5 in the 10 year, you, you taking the over or the under on that and show your math. Tell me why um, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to take the over on that. But just slightly, if you were if you would have rephrased that differently, where do you think we'll end? I would have said probably 350. So I, I, I think you'll see these bumps along the way where, you know, you, you just keep testing, you know, yields higher because I think uh, people are still very nervous about the Fed and inflation, but that's all going to reconcile, hopefully, by December. We'll have to call you next year and, and check on your prediction. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be interesting. Let, let, let's hope that I'm not off by an entire handle or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, you know, I agree. I don't, I don't think we'll see, you know, uh, a collapse in yields to, to anything like what we were used to. But I, you know, to your point, it, it is hard to see them going, you know, continue this sort of march higher throughout the rest of the year. So, all right, I'll, I'll, I think I'll, I'm with you. I'll take slightly higher too. What do you think, Feldana? Is this the time where I admit I hate the bond market? <laughs> 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 I hate it. <laughs> Why do you hate the bond market? Oh my I, gosh, because it's market. so counterintuitive. Like you have to flip everything in your head before you can even think about what's going on. <laughs> You like this, the nice, simple, easy to understand markets like crypto better. Yes, right? exactly. Exactly. I was going to say, how do you reconcile that? <laughs> That's even more complicated. <laughs> In my mind, it's much more straightforward. I love the crypto yeah. market. All right. Well, uh, Steve, it's great, great to hear your insights here, but we can't quite let you go just yet. We've got attrition here on this podcast. Uh, Vildana, tell them what it is. We are going to play the craziest things you, you saw in the market this week. I'll go first. For once for once I'll go I'll go first. Uh, I'm go first. I was I was hoping to go first actually. Oh, all right. Well, you go first. Well, cuz I have an update for something that you uh, I don't know, maybe it was like 5 or 6 episodes ago. Um I think you made me guess on an iPhone, like an original 2007 iPhone, how much it was going to go for and right. and the final auction took place. I don't know if you saw this. Oh, I no, I missed it. Thirty thousand dollars. No, it's no? way more. I... It sold for sixty three thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah, it's like a vintage. I have pictures. Can Is we it call it vintage? Yes, it's in its box with the with the plastic wrap and everything. Uh, yeah, sixty three thousand dollars. If that's vintage, I'm a I'm a full on antique at this point. Well, yeah. I may have one of those. Uh, I may have one of those in my garage somewhere. And I even well, you have a sixty-three thousand dollar investment. <laughs> take yeah. it out, Steve. <laughs> Put it up for auction. But I have one. Uh, I have another um, crazy thing. Okay, uh, my weirdest thing is Starbucks has this new drink. Did you see this? No, no, no. no. I, I can't believe it because my kids have me at make me drive them to Starbucks at least twice a week. Well, you're gonna be uh-huh. driving them to get coffee with olive oil they're literally just putting olive oil into the coffee and it's i don't know how to pronounce it it's called oleato oleato latte with milk and olive oil (laughs) is is that a thing like is that an old italian thing to do i have no idea there's a picture and it's like you know like how they make the coffee look so beautiful like all the milk is like dripping down 
And then there's just olive oil next to all the coffees. So, yeah, it looks like it's literally just olive oil and coffee. I can't wait to try it. Anyway, that's my weirdest thing. I don't know, Steve. That's a that's a tough one to top. Have, it, what's the craziest thing you've seen uh, in markets? I don't know how that's a market. I guess Starbucks is a it's public a publicly company, traded so company. Well, uh, all right, fine, fine. Yeah, I, I, I can't. How about you, Steve? I can't compete with that. I, I, I would say um, the craziest thing I've seen, um, and it, it wasn't a this week thing, but I just had this realization. You know, when we were talking about cash and the front end of the curve, you can buy a Treasury floater, okay, which has almost no duration, for like. I think it's somewhere between 460 and you know 460, 470, somewhere around there. It's it's amazing that you can get income off of something that has almost no duration and it's it's a treasury. So think about you know what you had to do three years ago to get that kind of yield. Um, you either had to right, take on right. a lot of duration or a lot of credit risk, and now you can now you can do that with with uh, with treasury floaters. That's pretty pretty amazing. That is pretty, that is a good one. You know, as you were, when you were talking about how low yields got there for a while, I was, you know, flashing back to the whole notion of negative yielding treasuries, you know, which the the front end did, I guess, go negative for a while there. But, you know, remember, you know, it it was this big debate if and when, you know, like would the 10 year yield actually go negative? Life comes at you fast, you know, when you, when you think about how that was the, uh, the craziest things we were talking about a few years ago. So, uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's quite quite a difference. But uh, all right, I'm going to give you mine. Um, Viltana, do you watch the WNBA at all? No. Women's National Basketball Association? Just football. Okay. Well, you might not be very good at this one then. Uh, I, I'm sort Is that of, why I, you chose I keep, it? I keep an eye on w- women's basketball. You know, the, the dirty secret in the Regan family growing up, there were six of us, five boys, one girl. We all, you know, fancied ourselves as, as who hoop stars but mm-hmm. my sister was was really the best she was the only one who played college ball so i i've always had a, a oh, that's impressive a soft soft spot for uh women's basketball diamond miller at, at university of maryland where my daughter goes now is google her highlight reel she's something special there is a very famous recent wnba player and i'm probably gonna say her name wrong but i believe it's sabrina inescu sabrina inescu um and her Rookie card just sold. Her rookie card for the WNBA just sold at auction. Highest ever price for a WNBA trading card. Uh, give you a few details here. It's one of just five copies in existence. It's graded as a perfect gem mint 10. Whatever that means. I, no that's clue. good, I guess. That's that's like a triple A bond, Steve, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know. By third-party grader PSA, so I, I'll, I'll take their word on it. So it's time to play the prices precise, precise, as you as you now know. Vildana, uh, highest ever auction sale for a WNBA trading card, uh, according to CBS Sports, uh, where I got this story from. What do, what do you think it was? I have negative knowledge about any of these topics. Literally negative. But this was, there's only five of them, so it's very unique. This is an exceptional player, um, her rookie card. So I, that's why I chose it. I think it's a challenging one. Okay, I'm going to go with $45,000. $45,000. I like your confidence in that, in that answer. It's um, feeling very not confident in that, but that's my guess. All right, Steve. Price's precise rules are, are the standard rules, you know. Uh, of that game show know. of a similar name. Yeah, yeah. 
that shall not be named. But you know, if you go over, you lose. So keep that in mind. Oh, so can I do the can I do the prices right thing and just go over yeah. by a penny? Absolutely. You can. <laughs> I'll be a little more bold. I'll say um, I'll do six figures. I'll say a hundred grand. Yeah, it's a tough one. I don't know what I would have guessed, to, to, to be honest. Uh, $10,800. Oh. Yeah, from PWCC oh Marketplace. I win. 10, I won. Won. Yep. Right? I don't know. You both went over, so I think. Yeah, but I went over by less. <laughs> and I won. I think I'm the real winner here. Well, As usual. What I would won. you have guessed? <laughs> I probably would have gone closer to Steve, I think. I, you know. You kind of hype it up, you know. It yeah, yeah. depends how you hype it up, you know. It, it you think highest ever price, but at the end of the day, you were still talking about eleven grand for a piece of cardboard. You right. know? It's pretty amazing. Um, so I, I have know. negative knowledge around card collecting uh, as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, who would have thought sixty three thousand for a quote unquote vintage iPhone and eleven thousand for a piece of paper? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if you can still use the iPhone, you know? I think so. Or you I'm wouldn't want to, I guess. You'd want to keep it in the box. It's wrapped up. Yeah, because I guess in 10 years, you'll sell it for double. Yeah. All right, Steve, go check that garage. Yeah, I'm uh, definitely going to check that garage. <laughs> uh, anyway, great to catch up with you, Steve. Uh, I hope we can get, have you back again someday. Maybe we'll have you back on the end of the year and see how that uh, year end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, that could be fun. I uh, know. Thanks, we'll do uh, it. thanks right. for having me. Thank you, Steve. All right, take care. What goes up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Vildana Hyrick. Mike Regan is at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong, and our head of podcasts is Sage Bauman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.